Most of us want to support the careers of the people we lead. In fact, most leaders recognize that if they don't do that, people will seek opportunities elsewhere. But a lot of us haven't had much direction on how to do this beyond asking cliche questions like, where do you see yourself in five years? After hearing this episode, you'll know exactly where to start with career conversations. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 370. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Many of us have lead, as leaders have heard that we should be having career conversations with our employees. And yet this is one of those things, going back to leaders aren't born, they're made, that most of us have not received any kind of formal training on. Uh, if we have, it's been little bits and pieces or we've picked up some ideas from others. But most organizations don't do this well. And so I often find that when I'm having conversations with people and leaders about how to talk to their employees about their career plans, that it's a difficult starting point. And that's why I was really excited to come across the work of today's guest, who I think has a model that is really helpful for leaders. In fact, we have a few people in our academy who have latched on this model and are utilizing it. And I think you're going to find this model really helpful too. I'm really thrilled to welcome Russ Laraway to the show today. Russ is the vice president of people at Qualtrics and was previously the co-founder and COO of Candor Inc., working with Kim Scott, the author of Radical Candor, who many of you know and remember. He's also been an executive at both Twitter and Google and a company commander in the United States Marine Corps. Russ, I am so glad to welcome you to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dave. I'm really, really excited to be on the show. Well, as I mentioned, uh, you were an officer in the Marine Corps, and I was reviewing some of your writing, and you say that one of the biggest reasons that the Marines are so effective is that they systematically push decision-making down to the lowest levels of the organization. Why is that important? Most people have heard the phrase, no plan survives first contact, or as Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah, indeed. And so the idea is that once the first bullet goes whizzing past your head, that very carefully laid out plan just sort of goes poof. And so now you're left with, what, like, what are you supposed to do while you're on the ground? And so what the Marine Corps has done is to ask every commander at every level to articulate something called commander's intent. And this is a few things, but most important is they ask them to articulate an end state of the battlefield. What is the end state of the battlefield? What is the envisioned future? And so when everything breaks down, your weapons jam, your radio stop working, it's too loud uh, to yell your instructions across brain rattling noise, or there's just all kinds of smoke around. You can't even see. How do you know what action to take? Well, the way you, the way you know what action to take is because you've got a clear picture of the end state of the battlefield. And by having that clear picture, this allows you to take relevant action in this moment. And that's the basic metaphor for career conversations, which is you have to understand someone's past, you have to understand someone's future, and it's only with both of those things in mind that you're ready to start to articulate and take relevant action today. A uh, big part of this model starts with 
looking backwards and zeroing in on what you call the life story of the person that you're trying to have this career conversation with. And you and my wife are both a fan of the show House. And for those who are thinking back a bit may remember, there was this show called House that featured a doctor. And here's a line from that show that you really zeroed into on career conversations. Uh, Tell me more about that. Yeah, Dr. Gregory House, the greatest diagnostician in the history of the world. (laughs) He and his team, whenever they would take the patient in, of course, the patient had to fill out patient history. And what Dr. House would always say is every patient lies. And, and the reason they said this was because while they were willing to look at the patient history, they also believed in their complex diagnoses that they needed to really be willing to completely jettison it. So that was the basic idea there. Around this initial life story conversation, it's quite a big investment to try to understand what someone values. And one could argue, well, why don't you just ask them what they value? And I used to do this, actually. I used to just kind of ask them. And what I learned is that every patient lies. And sometimes people lie to you completely by accident. They actually don't know what they value in their careers. They might communicate to you something that their parents value quite by accident. Other times it might be slightly more intentional, which is if you're a manager and they're more junior to you, there's sort of this natural power differential that exists. And sometimes people will say things that they think you want to hear. And so as I went through this a few times, I was trying to actually dial in the process what I realized was that I needed a better way to try to understand what people value. And I realized that through the story of their life, the choices they made, where they were happy, where they weren't happy, when they made certain pivots in their careers and lives, that would often signal something that they value. And I realized no one, except for the occasional sociopath, can lie their way through their life story. And so in order to really understand what they value, in their careers. I thought it was important to understand their life story and then along the way probe the pivot points, which usually signaled something that was very important to them. When they made a pivot, that usually signaled something was very important. Okay, this this is great. So uh, before we talk about the pivot points, I'm curious, how do you set up this conversation? So you're going to have a life story conversation with an employee or someone's coming on your team for the first time. Do you tell them in advance what that's going to be? Like, I would think people would be a little bit like, huh? You're going to do what? I don't mind if you do, but I don't. And the reason is, what, what I'll do is sort of tee up at a high level. Hey, I'd, love to, I'd love to talk through your career with you. And I have a very specific way I'd like to do that. And it's a handful of conversations. And I'd like to have the first conversation, you know, in our, instead of our one-on-one this week, let's go ahead and have this first conversation. Just kind of tee it up only, only that much. I don't actually like to give much more detail than that because I find that people are a little more guarded. They sort of shape that story a little bit more than I would like. Um, I prefer a pretty raw, unprepared articulation of their life story. And I do actually prefer to surprise them a little bit. And, And I understand there are some risks with that, but generally feel pretty equipped to work my way through that. And when they show up, I mean, I kick it off the exact same way every time. And without exaggeration, the first question I ask is starting with kindergarten, tell me about your life. And then just kind of let them get moving and then sort of take it from there. So I'm just curious, do you ever have people that kind of look at you like, what? (laughs) Like, how how does that start off? Does it just start off or do people push back on that? 
Not really. I, I've uh, surprisingly never had any kind of pushback. Of course, you know, I've had sort of the, hey, do we need a couch for this? You know, um, <laughs> sort of talking about maybe you're going to a psychiatrist's office or something. But generally, I would say when people understand that the whole point here is talking about their career, I would say they come to the conversation with a little bit more of a favorable bias. And even asking that question, which is admittedly probably a little surprising, they still maintain the positive bias. I think you still have a bunch of goodwill that this person's happy that you're preparing to invest in them and their career because that was the setup. And so I've probably got a thousand repetitions on this process, these three conversations, and I don't recall once ever somebody offering any kind of pushback to me. Now, I have, as I've taught others to do it, I have heard in organizations that some folks have occasionally expressed some concern, how's this going to be used, et cetera. And so we just make sure we're skilled and equipped to clarify how it's going to be used. It's not going to be used in a performance appraisal. It's not going to be used for your pay. It's only going to be used so that I can get a better understanding of what you really value in your career, and that's it. You said a few moments ago that a key part of this is pivot points. Tell me about that, and as this conversation emerges of kindergarten, and I assume you go through some of the you know the other life stages as far as where people have been and what they've been doing, what are the pivot points you're looking for? Yeah, I'll give you an example that is you would you would normal in a normal conversation you might completely just brush past, but in the context of this conversation, a pivot that might lead to some value. And so the example, and this is a real example from a conversation, a life story conversation I had years ago. A woman was talking and she'd mentioned the transition from middle school to high school where she'd gone from cheerleading to swimming. And she said something like this. I, I was a cheerleader and then I switched to swimming and oh my gosh, swimming was so much better. And then she would normally, of course, carry on and just, just keep talking and take me through her high school years. And in this case, I stopped and I said, well, actually, do you mind sharing with me what it is that led you to feel like swimming was so much better? And two things happened in that moment. The first thing that happened was she sort of stopped and tilted her head, maybe pointed her eyes toward the sky and said, huh, you know, I never really thought about that. So then she thought about it, which, by the way, implies there's a little bit of even self-discovery happening here. This idea of every patient lies. I'm, I'm helping her get to her own truth about this. And she said, you know what it was? We, in both cases, we spent a lot of time doing what we do. You know, cheerleading, we practice all the time. Swimming, we practice all the time. And what happened, in, when I was in that pool for hours on end, I knew that every single minute I spent in that pool would lead to a tangible outcome, meaning I might improve my uh, podium finish or maybe even just get my times lower. And it just didn't feel like that was the case in cheerleading. We would get a little better, a little tighter, a little, you know, we'd be a better unit, but there weren't really measurable, tangible outcomes. And so I filed this away in my head and I thought, well, this will be, now this becomes a theory that I'll test throughout the rest of this conversation to make sure it's this kind of real thing. All the way back to middle school, it was important for this person to be able to see tangible outcomes kind of derived from the hard work that they put in. Hard work leads to outcomes. And so that's, that's an example of how probing those pivots helps us to understand what people value. And the basic objective of the conversation, Dave, is try to find patterns. So it's one thing that it shows up once. It's another if it shows up quite a few times. You know, there's sort of the grade school, then there's middle school, high school, then there might be university. There could be first job, then maybe master's degree, then second job and current job. 
And there's a set of questions that tend to work pretty well. What did you love about that? What did you hate about that? Why did you make that decision? Why did you choose that major? What kind of activities were you involved in in high school? Why, why were you involved in those activities? Why did you, you just keep asking for why they made the decisions that they made, what they loved and what they didn't love. And pretty soon you're able to get an extremely rich understanding of what they value. And you both have a shared understanding because you both understand what they value in the context of their life story. So the hour completes, you spend time after that hour of actually putting together your notes. And then you actually, I, I think you try to identify some of the values and, and then go back and share that with the employee, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So as a, as a prescription, I strongly suggest that the manager takes notes like their life depends on it. When I get done one of these, I'll have sometimes six, seven, eight pages of notes, something like that. And then immediately following the conversation, I'll go back through, you know, sort of highlighter and maybe a different color pen. And I'm trying to find these patterns. I've been developing hypotheses along the way while we're having the conversation. You know, maybe I start a little statement that they made and I thought, oh, this might, this might be something. And I go back through after their entire body work and I look for the patterns look for the patterns. And then I will actually document for the employee what I understood their values to be. And so I'll find evidence that is something like, you know, cheerleader to swimmer, and I'll give that a name. And it doesn't matter. There's no glossary of names of these. It's just something that makes sense. And so what I might say is that swimming to cheerleader story, plus a couple others, I might name that hard work leads to tangible outcomes. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, we don't have to get fancy here. And so I'll sort of document hard work leads to tangible outcomes. And then I'll reflect the handful of stories maybe I heard over the course of their life that led me to believe that's a value. And by the end of this, you can usually, there's somewhere five, half a dozen, eight, something like that. I don't prescribe how many you should find, but that's, that's usually where we are. So this is step one, three conversations. First one, looking back, the life story, getting some clarity around the values. So second conversation then what does the vision look like for the career vision? Is it a document? Is it a conversation? Like, what is it you're trying to get to emerge from this? Yeah, the first idea is it's a career vision, not a life vision. So sometimes folks want to say, you know, I just want to travel the world. And I think that's fine. It's just not particularly useful. Uh, if you think about what the last step is here, this is about building this plan. The The vision statement needs to be really the pinnacle of your career, right? At the pinnacle of your career, when you are happiest, you're most challenged, you're not wanting for anything else. When you daydream about that, and don't try to tell me that you don't daydream about that because you do. When you daydream about that, just try to tell me what does that look like? What does that look like? And so it's not a life vision, it's a career vision. And then it's okay for us to start out a little bit fuzzy, but we do need to try to bring it into focus because, again, we're trying to create a tangible action plan with some clear idea of what you want to be when you grow up, what that dream job is of yours. And so we need to make it a little bit more tangible. So that's, that's sort of the, the, the main idea is a career vision that's pretty tangible, pinnacle of your career, challenged, not wanting for anything else. What is it that you're doing? What does that look like? And so we try to, we try to get that down on paper. I know there's people hearing this who are thinking like, I'm not even sure where I'm going in my career, much less helping someone else to get to that point and have that clarity. I'm wondering if you get a lot of pushback from people on like, well, how could I 
I don't know where I'm going. And are there questions that you found as far as asking that really helped to open that up a bit and move beyond that initial, like, I'm not sure where I'm going? Yeah, I would say this is probably one of the greatest skepticisms that I hear around this visioning part. And I'll have managers, you know, that are in their 40s uh, like me and say, Russ, I don't even know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know how we could expect our young employees to know what they want to be. And, and I understand that I've heard it a lot. I'll say again, with a thousand repetitions under my belt, I had exactly one person that I couldn't facilitate into a vision. And here's, here's how to break through that skepticism. So if you start out saying, what is your career vision? That, that actually, that's a little bit of an inaccessible way to start. I think if you start out asking them about their dream, their daydream, at the pinnacle of your career, when you're challenged and not wanting for anything else, what does that look like? What are you doing? I also think that it's less true for most people that they don't know what they want to be when they grow up. And it's more true that it's actually very hard to think about. It's a very prefrontal cortex intensive process. And they just don't devote the time and energy to do that. And so again, as a manager, creating time, space, accountability, you are going to force this person effectively to prioritize themselves and to prioritize their future in a way that's a little bit uncomfortable. And so I just think you have, to, you have to work at this. Everybody's got a dream. And if you just get someone talking about their dream, you'll start to get something useful. And imagine this, imagine a metaphor for the vision statement. It's a lighthouse in the distance. And maybe the first articulation of the dream, you're looking at it through binoculars and it's way out of focus. You can kind of tell it's a lighthouse, uh, but that's about it. Maybe there's a, a lot of fog around the lighthouse. And so it's just real hard to see. And the goal is start there. And then just like with a set of binoculars, gradually try to pull that into focus. And there's really three questions. Now, I want to be really clear, Dave. Don't start with these three questions. You'll, you'll get bad results, I promise. Start with the dream. And then to bring the dream into focus, trying to understand what size company someone envisions themselves in. So some people love the idea of a larger, safer company with more uh, process. And some people love the idea of the freewheeling small company. It's really important to get underneath what kind of environment they envision themselves in. I think the second is just what industry. There are lots of people in the tech industry that can't imagine being in any other industry. So I think it's important to just try to get that out on the table. And you'd be surprised when folks are younger in their career how often they're uh, orienting toward a different industry than they're currently in. And that needs to be okay and safe. And then last, I do like to ask people to try to come up with a title. And the title, just as a proxy for, do they envision themselves running some sort of large group? Do they envision themselves a functional leader? Do they envision themselves a very senior individual contributor? I, I think it's really, really important to get underneath all of that. And you mix that all together. <clears throat> and I'll give you an example of by far my favorite vision statement I ever had an employee say to me. It was uh, a woman I was working with at Google. We were working on ad technology at the time. And the vision statement she laid out was, I want to own and operate my own spirulina farm. Dave, do you know what spirulina is? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm surprised you're in California. Usually the only place anybody knows what that is is in California. But, but anyway, what it is is a high protein uh, algae, basically. It smells like your fish tank and tastes like the walls of your fish tank. Oh, lovely. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's like a superfood, I guess. Anyway, she wanted to own and operate her own spirulina farm. And if you think about that, the industry is clearly farming, uh, algae, algae farming. 
size of the company, it was implied. I knew through the course of the conversation, small company. She's not trying to make the biggest spirulina farm uh, in the UK, which is where she lives. And own and operate was clearly a general management type role. Like she wanted to be running the show. And that was always, that's always very interesting. In fact, when I say this to groups that I'm training, that always gets a little bit of a chuckle because they remembered that I just said that she was my employee at Google and we were working on ad serving. And then to have the career vision be own and operate their own spirulina farm, the natural reaction is, well, that's disconnected. Which, of course, if you think about it just slightly more deeply, it's not, and you ask the question, is it disconnected? You start to realize there's an awful lot that you're learning in any company that's taking you tangibly toward that career vision. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've heard that same objection so many times of, well, you know, I found out this about my employee and they want to go start their own business someday, or they're thinking about doing this other thing that's completely quote unquote disconnected from the business. And my thought is like always, I want to know about that because if I know about that and I know what skill set they need to develop in order to make that move that they want to make and they're going to do anyway, I can help to align some of their work, the context, the conversations, the coaching I give them that helps to align with where they want to go. And so they not only stay connected to our organization better, but they're a better engaged, more productive employee. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we've got the first two. We've got the life story. We've got the long-term vision, third conversation, career action plan. I know this is something that a lot of organizations fall short on. A lot of managers don't necessarily know what to do with this. What are some of the problems that tend to emerge with putting together a career plan or an individual development plan that it's called in some organizations? Yeah, I think the typical approach to an IDP or an individual development plan is that it, it tends to be a moment in time, a big organizational push. There's sort of like a statistics view, like let's get 100% of our employees on an IDP. And, you know, the, the, way, the way it goes down is the vice president turns around, asks directors, get everybody on an IDP. The director turns around, asks all the managers, get everybody on an IDP. The managers say, hey, gather around team, let's, let's all do our IDPs. And then they cascade that back up the chain, thumbs up, we're done. Director says, thumbs up, we're done. Vice president says, thumbs up, we're done. And everybody feels really great about themselves because they've all completed their IDPs. And then the problem is that nobody ever looks at those IDPs again. So if we're trying to avoid that, of that generic IDP process that happens, what do you find on a practical level is helpful to get down on paper or to be having conversations about in order to get this action plan to emerge in something that's really useful for people? I think that it really boils down to making every single part of the career action plan an action item. And I carefully define what constitutes an action item and everything else is not an action item. So one way to make sure that you take action is to have well-crafted action items. And what I always say is it's very simple. You need to answer three questions. Who will do what by when? Those, those happen to be the exact same questions you need to answer when making a commitment to somebody or a promise. Who will do what by when? I promise you, if you don't have all three of those questions answered, you do not have an action item. You have a check in the box. The second thing is I think the way that we organize the career action plan is, is quite useful and lends itself, you know, it's just a little bit of structure. So there's, there's the idea of the action plan, and then there's sort of four areas to build the career action plan around, and the action items, handful of action items, will fall into each one. So I think the first one is, I call it develop your role, 
a lot of times we fall into the trap that the only way we can make tangible progress toward our future is by advancing or changing jobs. But actually, if you think about it for a minute, the thing as a manager you have the most control over is what that person does every single day. And so is there something you can change, uh, even the smallest change to their current job that, that contemplates their long-term career vision and helps them feel like they're making tangible progress toward that vision? And by the way, hopefully actually make tangible progress. I'll give you two examples. Someone says they want to be the CFO of Disney and they're very junior, but that's for some reason, that's what the, what's in their head. Why don't you let them run the team's budget? right? Something very, somebody's got to run the team's budget. Why don't you go ahead and delegate that out? That's a fictional example um, used, used because it's kind of easy to understand. Or a guy that worked with me at Google, it became really clear that we needed to sort of increase the global nature of his job. And so we were able to make some tweaks to his role that allowed him to get a little more global exposure. Again, that was important given his long-term career vision. So that's the idea of developing your current role. It's the one that most people just skip over and forget. There's actually a lot we can do right now in your current job to help make sure you're making tangible progress toward the long-term vision. The second one I highlight is really training, uh, you know, so getting new skills. And of course, you can get skills lots of ways on the job is, is one that folks love to say, but I'm talking very specifically about training. And I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, companies have training offerings and you know, you can sign up and go to this training or maybe even go to an ex, you know, the company of them sort of pay for the external, for some external training. And there are people who just love to learn and they'll try to go to all of these trainings. And that might be a good investment for the company. It might not. It might be a good investment in, of their time and it might not. But if you suddenly put training in the context of a long-term career vision, that, that's a really big game changer. And I'll give you a, a fun example. When I was at Google, there was this class at Wharton West taught by a guy named Stuart Diamond called Advanced Negotiations. And we're a growing, scaling company, and everybody really thought they needed this class because everyone was trying to be strategic. Everyone wanted to be strategic, <laughs> one right. of my least favorite words in, in business. Anyway, a bunch of people had signed up for this class, and it was, it was a little bit of a Ricky Waters for who, for what kind of moment. But when you think about, for a moment, someone wants to be the head of business development for Netflix or Netflix-like video platform, well, suddenly that training investment makes a ton of sense, the advanced negotiations class. So taking trainings, which can be in and of themselves arbitrary, and putting them into context of your career vision. The third area of the career action plan is develop your network. And this is really about finding maybe mentors. I'm not a huge fan of forced mentorship or mentorship programs, but I think identifying people who can inform and influence your choices, maybe your next job or your future. I think identifying those people and then getting sort of informational interviews and beginning to build those bridges is really smart and can pay off in the long run. One of the guys that worked for me at Google, we, based on what his career vision was, which was to be a CEO of a mid-sized tech company, it was really clear that he needed to get product management experience. He didn't really have enough in his background and because product manager or technical types who tend to be the CEOs in tech, this was fairly important. And so one of the initial introductions or informationals I kind of sent him off to do was with a pretty senior product person at Google. Anyway, fast forward about, I don't know, seven to 10 years, and that relationship ended up paying off. And my friend got a job under that same guy from seven to 10 years earlier 
And my friend is, if you, have you ever used YouTube on any of your devices? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, so my friend's job is to be the product manager for that app that's on your iOS device or your Android device. That first meeting he had back when we did his initial career action plan paid off seven to 10 years later uh, in a job you know, in charge of the YouTube app. I mean, it's not like some job you've never heard of. It's a pretty, pretty big job. So that's kind of how the developed network idea works. And then last is you, you do have to talk about the next job or the next step in your career, I think it's really important, really important to get this out in the open and talk about it and actively work with your employee to make that happen on a timeline that works for both of you. And again, making sure they don't sort of fall into the grass's greener trap and go to another company or go to another job sort of arbitrarily, but making sure that we're working together to identify what's the smartest next job to take that enables me to grow and learn and develop, but also is a clear step uh, toward my long-term career vision. And I get a lot of pushback on that. And you, you have a choice. They're already thinking about these things, whether you're there or not to talk to them or work with them or to know, you have a choice. Stick your head in the sand and pretend like they're not thinking about all of their other options or be a part of that conversation so you can affect it in a high quality way and help them not make a mistake or help them to pursue that thing that really does make sense for them you got to set them free, but make sure you're playing a high-quality role in, in setting them free and making sure and helping them understand how to think about that next step in the context of their long-term career vision. Russ, you've had a ton of success in a lot of executive leadership roles. You've done some really great and visible work with Radical Candor that a lot of our audience is familiar with. You know, Leaders are always growing, and they're changing their mind. What have you changed your mind on in the last couple of years as you've been doing all this work? So one of the biggest areas that has emerged and, and really th through a lot of research is the relationship between employee engagement and results of an, of an enterprise. And what has also emerged is a pretty hardcore view on the relationship between the direct supervisor and employee engagement. And I've always been on the human side of people leadership. What, what I've realized over the years is the degree to which the human side of leadership affects engagement and the degree to which engagement subsequently or consequently affects enterprise results. And by the way, just using a little bit of Gallup research, which I think is super interesting, they did a study back in 2014 called the State of Global Engagement. And they show this one chart that's unbelievably compelling. Looking at publicly held companies, they show that companies that are in the top decile of employee engagement, those companies have 147% better earnings per share performance than the competitive set. Top quartile, 92% better, 92% better. And so you flip down a few slides and then you see this, this statement that says managers affect 70% of engagement, 7-0% of engagement. And so... The, the biggest thing that I've learned over the years is that that human side really does impact employee engagement, as you described, and that is extremely important because engaged employees tend to help you produce better enterprise results. And so I think one of the biggest things I've learned is, is to make that connection very explicitly and, and to feel really, really good about that. Well, speaking of explicitly, Russ, this model is incredibly helpful to me and our audience because it is very accessible. It's simple. It's not always easy, but it's simple to 
be able to execute on. I first came across it reading Radical Candor, Kim's book, and her mentioning your model. And boy, I'd love to see this become a book too, and for more people to be using this. I really appreciate your time in teaching us how to do this, and I'm excited to see what our audience does coming out of this conversation to execute on these three steps. Yeah, I would love to hear people's experiences with the model. And remember, the visioning part is the most important part. Don't let the process die after you get done the very exciting and fun life story conversation. The vision is the most important and most difficult part. Like me, I'm guessing many of you know leaders who would benefit from this framework. Thank you so much, Russ, for sharing it with us. And if you do know someone who would benefit from uh, having a framework like this for career conversations, I hope you'll pass this conversation along to them. A number of other past episodes that relate to career conversations, one of them is episode number 149, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. It features Chris Hatfield, who wrote the book of the same name. Chris is the former commander of the International Space Station, and talked on that episode about his career journey as an astronaut. And if you know anything about astronauts, they have a lot that they do in their careers that doesn't include space travel. In fact, most of their careers don't include space travel. Talked a lot about his career on that episode and his journey, a ton of lessons for every leader. Again, that's episode 149. Also, I'd recommend episode 236, How Super Bosses Master the Flow of Talent. Sidney Finkelstein was my guest on that episode. He talked about his research of how super bosses, people who are in industry that influence across not only their organizations, but really across an entire industry and how they help to develop the careers of people in an industry and how ultimately that comes back to benefit them and their organizations too. If you want to become that kind of a leader, career conversations is a must-have skill and episode 236 will absolutely support you in getting there as well. Also recommended is episode 302, How to Challenge Directly and Care Personally. Kim Scott was my guest Uh, in that episode, and she's the author of the book Radical Candor. And as I mentioned earlier on, Russ uh, is the co-founder of Candor Inc. In fact, I first found out about this model when reading a bit about it in Kim's book. It's a great compliment to today's conversation, echoes many of the principles we've talked about it, and Kim and Russ have done a lot of work together, and that's episode 302. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 312, What Great Technical People Leverage from Leadership. John Lockhorst, uh, executive coach, was my guest on that episode. We talked about this challenging perspective that some folks in industry have that uh, technical folks don't need leadership development. (laughs) We talked about that a bunch on that episode, that myth. It is a myth, of course. And also, more importantly, what are some strategies for working on that, especially if you are a technical leader or supporting technical leaders? So again, that's episode 312. And of course, you can get access to those episodes and every other episode in the library since 2011 by activating your free membership and being able to search by topic. If you do that, you'll get access not only to the entire library of past episodes, but you'll also get access to the member cast, my personal library, the weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, and immediate access to my free 10-day audio course, 
titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me just 10 minutes a day, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a more effective leader. You can get access to all of that just by going to coachingforleaders.com and activating your free membership. And I am excited to share with you that next week, we're going to have a conversation about how to get smart about using assessments and surveys. You've certainly heard of uh, surveys like, uh, or assessments rather, like uh, StrengthsFinder and MBTI and DISC and 360 assessments, and we've talked about many of them on the show before, but how do they all relate? When should you use one versus another? What's a survey? How do you do that? Ken Nowak's going to teach us a framework for thinking about all of those from the 30,000-foot level. Join us next week for that. Thank you to Pablo Tested the App in China, Yu Minsta in the UK, FP PJ Sharma in India, and K Snyder 14082 here in the States for the kind reviews you all left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much if you've been listening for a bit and have a review to leave coachingforleaders.com slash apples where to go. See you next week. Take care.